Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any information about our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. Last week, talked about the importance of first love. And uh, you'll remember I put this up there, and you'll see this more um, as, as we go forward, and we're going to expand and kind of go up, because I really want the Great Commission and Great Command to be practical to everyone. That's one of my prayers, as I'm praying for that on our church-wide prayer request, that it would be accessible and practical to everyone. Uh, but I really felt like as we were moving forward that the Lord brought us back into the middle to know him, that he really wants to know his church, his bride. And so I want to be clear on something as we go forward and as we continue on in the series, because I won't be done after today. Uh, the more time I spend in prep, the more I think <laughs> I need a longer time to unpack this because it's so big and so important and so critical. Way too much is at stake if we get this one piece wrong. But, uh, but so anyhow, that's why we're going back into that center, into that place, that fire, that heart of why we do what we need to do. But then we're going to spend more time going out. But last week we talked about the importance of first love. And I even, you know, we talked about the Great Commission and Great Command. These are the things we do. And we often say, you know, Great Commission, Great Command, it starts with the first commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. But what we, what we said last week is we actually first have to receive love. So there's a receiving of love. Uh, we spent a little bit of time on that, but we talked about the importance of having that love, that first love with Jesus, and having everything else that we do come out of that place. Um, so that's what we talked about last week. And uh, just a couple of things that, that I said that are important I want you to remember. Uh, one was when we embrace the mission outside, right? That's the mission. The outer circles are the mission. And remember, it's not Southland's mission. This is Jesus' mission. I can give you loads of scripture for everything said on that, on that screen. And not just New Testament. Old Testament to New Testament. These are themes that are throughout the, the scriptures. These are the ancient paths. But so... Those are the things we do, um, but if we embrace the mission without first embracing Jesus, we miss the point. There will be, Jesus said, people that say, Lord, Lord, but the decisive issue is whether you obeyed, right? Well, that's the doing. But then he goes on to expand and says, and many will say, did we not prophesy and cast out demons and do many mighty works? And I will say, go away, I didn't know you. So there's a higher thing than obedience, and that leads to the next statement because, right, Jesus said in John 14, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. And often we see those as synonymous. They're not synonymous. It's cause and effect. When we love him, when we know him, it results in obedience. We can obey without love, but we cannot love without obedience. So that was last week. We used the, the analogy of... <laughs> Of the, of the young couple getting married, Austin and Luella, but uh, we use that analogy of, of young love, right? That, that engagement process, which actually is very, it's, it's very much the, the language used throughout the entirety of Scripture for the relationship God wants to have with us. We're actually in the betrothal period now, the engagement, waiting for the bridegroom to come. Uh, so we use that analogy, but I like it that Scripture uses that because it doesn't let us get away with just going through the task list, does it? Because young love, you give up like countless hours to doing dumb things, really. You waste time together. You waste money. You waste your thoughts. Like you totally give that other person access to your head and you think about basically nothing else. You're willing to give up anything for them. And yet that's the picture that God gives us of us, his bride with the bridegroom, him. And, and, and by the way, don't just focus on, oh, I never feel that way towards him. Remember, if that's the picture he gives, that's the way he feels towards you. Oh, sorry. 
Let that sink in. That's the way he feels towards you. Okay, on, I gotta get to here. I actually have to get into this week's message. <clears throat> I've pastored for over a decade now. And during that time there, I have met with people for a variety of reasons and lots. And, you know, um, I've also had to meet with others for a variety of reasons for myself. So this isn't, <laughs> it's just the way it goes, right? We all need help. And, and then we should go out and help others uh, with, with the gifts and the talents that God has given us. So anyhow, I've, having pastored for over a decade, I've met a lot of Christians. And I discovered this thing, this like, it's the weirdest anomaly. Regardless of what they were struggling with, the, the most common denominator that I found for, for someone that stays trapped was lack of knowing God. Not always because they were bad or because they didn't want to. Sometimes it was they were, they, they were stuck feeling lies or they were stuck with not knowing how or they were too busy or they were too whatever. But regardless of the reason for getting there, even with good intentions, this lack of knowing God, of spending time with him and investing into that relationship was leading to this bondage, this being stuck. And I have heard things like, you know, then you start talking about growing and cultivating this burning heart or growing a devotional life. And you talk about prayer and you hear things. I've heard this so many times. Prayer feels like a chore. By the way, anything I say here, I'll tell you, I have felt before myself. I'm not speaking from this place of having arrived just as human as anybody else, okay? But prayer feels like a chore. Or I don't have time to get into my devotions. I have too many things on my, on my task list. There's too many things to do. Uh, I'm full, I have anxiety and stress. I'm worried about my kids. I'm worried about my husband. I'm worried about my wife. I'm worried about my parents. I'm worried about this sickness. I'm worried about a great many things. And yet Jesus says in Matthew, he says, do not be anxious about your life. It's like a command. Remember the first time that sunk in as a command? It felt like permission. He gave me permission to stop being anxious. By the way, anxiety's hard, and I've been, I went through three years of it, really, really rough, right before the pandemic. I'm not saying it's an easy thing to walk through, but we go through this, right? We force ourselves, or maybe you get into your word, but it's just a task list. You, you read it, but the Bible feels boring. Have you ever felt that way? The Bible's boring. Where's this treasure of great value? We can go through all that checklist and then when we start talking great commission and great command we look at that discipleship wheel and part of us says well that's cool another part just like all the things as soon as I say you each one of you everyone in here you are called by God himself to give your entire life to loving him not 10 percent not 2 percent not 50 percent he will not even be satisfied with 90 percent he is jealous for the spirit that he has put within you. Jealous. Because he loves you. Desires you. He wants you. But then we look at, I could go on to the command and say, and from that place, he commands you to love him with all your heart. You are then to love people. Notice how we always talk about self-care in the West. Not, by the way, it's not like it's bad. We should take care of ourselves. But notice how in the great command, it doesn't say you shall love yourself first then God and people when you have time. Love God, love people. He doesn't even mention yourself. And that's good, because we do talk about that other places in the Word. It does, actually. It does give self-care instruction, like do not be anxious. Instead, do this. Through prayer and supplication. Paul, right? Through prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be known to God. That is self-care. Learning how to pray. Learning how to get in the Word. That's all self-care. But, do you see the point here? And then Great Commission. Go out and do all the nations, church. 
teaching them about Jesus, not just teaching them knowledge, teaching them practices, teaching them to obey him, helping them get to know him, baptizing people. And you start looking at that and you're like, that is so inaccessible to me. I, I just, it's way out there. And maybe you're sitting here and you're thinking, I could never do that. I just feel like I have X, Y, Z that I'm never getting done right. I feel shame and guilt in my walk with God and it feels dry. Why is that? If first love is so important, why does it seem to be the most elusive thing on the planet? Dana Chandler writes, the degree of our passion for him is relative to the degree of his passion for us that we have experienced. That we have experienced. Burning hearts ignite from encounters with Jesus. That's how they ignite. You want a burning heart? There is no other way to get a burning heart. There's no Zippo or lighter that you can light yourself on fire. You should never try that. Burning hearts ignite from encounters with Jesus, period. That is always the way it's been from the beginning. For all eternity, we will have this heart that gets more and more on fire and in love for him. So much so that we're going to get to experience one day what those creatures know that they cry holy, holy, holy and they worship and never get tired of it. He's committed to this. This is not an isolated verse. This one here, we love him because he first loved us. By the way, can we read that together? We always should read the word when we're, when we're gathered, amen? Let's read it. We love him because he first loved us. That's 1 John 4.19. Can you do it with your eyes closed? We love him because he first loved us. 1 John 4.19. If you did that with your eyes closed, you just memorized a verse. Ha! That's not even what the message is about. God is good. Okay, Moses. Let's start with Moses. Oops, I put two on there. That's fine. Moses in Exodus 3. What happens to Moses? He's kind of running away in shame, has his whole start, and he's walking around. He sees this bush. There's a fire going, and there's a bush on fire, and he goes to inspect this bush on fire, and he discovers a fire burning and a bush in the middle of it, and the, the bush is unsinged by the flames. You ever seen that? Neither had he. Neither had he, and he was in awe. He was struck in awe. And not just awe, actually he was struck with fear. And then a voice billows out from the fire. The fire is God himself. God himself is revealing himself, the glory of God, revealing himself to mankind. This is a pattern throughout scripture happening today, still now, the glory of God revealing himself to man to draw him to himself. That's exactly what happens in Moses, with Moses, right? Moses' response hides his face. He's afraid to look at God. What does God say? Gives him a name. You remember his name? I am. That's the name God gives him, right? I am is speaking to you. I am is here, right? You're on holy ground. I can't imagine what that must have been like. And yet, I can Because I've been on holy ground. <laughs> I don't stay there. I should probably, right? Moses goes on to confront Pharaoh, the, the superpower of the day, the leader of like the free world, the, the superpower. He goes on to confront that Pharaoh after that encounter with God. See that cause and effect? Burning bush, hide your face. God says, I am. I'm calling you. I've picked you. 
I've made you for this, I've called you, I've gifted you, and now I'm telling you to go. Mind you, he did say he needed someone to help him speak. <laughs> and then I love it how God relented on that. Beautiful. Anyhow, Moses goes on to lead his people out of Egypt through the Red Sea and through the wilderness towards the Promised Land. Won't go through the whole story. Wow, eh? Israelites Mount Sinai. Here's a really neat story here, uh, because, uh, and we'll pick it up in Exodus 19 and Exodus 20. We'll hit two little uh, snippets. So, First we go here, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, so therefore, because you've seen all these things, you've encountered my glory, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. See, even there, before he's calling them into this covenant, he's revealing himself to them. They're getting to see the glory of God. And it's often equal to and measure to the calling that he's going to call you to do. It's quite fascinating. But now look what they experienced. Because it didn't stop there. When they saw the thunder, this is at Mount Sinai now, okay? Now we're at Mount Sinai, and this is what the Israelites got to experience. The glory of God falling on the mountain, which Paul was later on to say, this was, he doesn't say baby glory, that's my own paraphrase. But he basically says, what they saw was baby glory. We have the full glory of God but anyhow, this is what they saw. The glory of God fell on the mountain. They saw thunder and flashes. Can, can you just close your eyes for a second? I want you to try to imagine this. You're looking at this big mountain. And on the mountain, the glory of God, whatever that looks like, this glory of God descends on the mountain. And you see, that you, you see lightning starting to flash. It's crackling through the skies. And there's thunder. And it's booming. And it's loud. And then there's this sound of a trumpet. And the mountain begins to smoke. And this fire of God falls onto the mountain. You can open your eyes. Can you imagine seeing that, church? I spent a lot of time trying to think about that yesterday. <laughs> Anyways, but look at this. Moses said to the people, do not fear, because they're afraid and trembled. Wouldn't you be afraid and tremble? I would. There's probably good reason why anyone who sees the, even the likeness of the glory of God seems to have the same result in Scripture. They fall on their face as though dead. Here we are. Moses says, Do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be in you that you may not sin. Interesting. So he's calling them to fear him, but he's also calling them to obey his covenant. This is, by the way, part of it's not, I mean, the Mosaic covenant kind of gets spread out, and Pastor Ray's talked out about, a lot about that uh, over a period of time when God was giving it to them. But this is part of when the Mosaic covenant is being given, right? At Mount Sinai, and God wants them to obey that covenant. He doesn't want them to fall into sin. But you notice even there, the commandment to do not sin comes after they have received a revelation of the glory of God. He's trying to help them. God has always done that. He has always given the motivation and the power possible so that we can follow him in faithfulness. And obviously, we didn't have everything we needed. We need the new covenant, the new heart, and the new spirit that was promised. But we're not getting onto that now. Cause and effect. An encounter with God's glory that is there to help them keep the covenant. Now we'll go to the Apostle Paul. Saul to Paul. Right? Saul was his first name. Saul was a zealot, a religious Pharisee. He was on fire. Like in many respects, he would have been on fire for God, what we would say God, right? He's on fire for God. He's working in the church. He's serving. He's going out and he's speaking truth the best that he knows how. He is passionate. And in his day, he's also putting to death and taking away and persecuting Christians. This follower of the way. 
that's perverting Judaism and the pharisaical way. He's, he's going after them with everything he has. And then what happens? Well, let's take a look. Let's see what happened. Suddenly, he's walking on the road to Damascus. So imagine you're taking a stroll on the road to, where would we walk to? Maybe you're going to 7-Eleven. No, going to co-op for their ice cream if they have the grandma's cupboard. Is that what it is? Yeah, it's good. Anyways, but you're walking on the way there, and suddenly, light from heaven shines on you. This light, boom, blasting on you. That's what happened to Saul. And he falls to the ground. Oh, oh, there that is again. Falls to the ground. He hears a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul says, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Wow, that is absolutely incredible. A few, uh, a few verses later, the Lord now is meeting with Ananias. And what's cool is we'll add him to this list, even though I won't give a bunch of verses, because Ananias is supposed to go and lay his hands on Paul and pray for him so he can regain his sight and that he can give God uh, or uh, Paul instructions, Saul to Paul, right? Anyways, what does God do for giving him that calling? That would have been a terrifying calling too, wouldn't it have? Ananias, Christian, go to Saul, persecutor of Christians, and say that God sent you. How many of you would want to sign up for that message? So God appears to Ananias too, which is pretty awesome. That's just the God we serve. This is cause and effect. He does this from the beginning of time. We encounter glory, and then we have to respond. We're going to get on to that part in a little bit. Acts 9, 17 to 18. Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road to Damascus, has sent me to proclaim, right, that you may regain your sight. I love it. Scales fall from his eyes and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And there Paul goes into some further training and then ends up being the Apostle Paul, right, who never saw Jesus face to face like the other apostles, but had an encounter with the glory of God, the living God, in the Holy Spirit, in in the fullness of God revealed in Jesus Christ. He had an encounter with him later on. And it changed him forever. It transformed him. So much so that he went on to be basically the father of the church for the Gentiles, which includes, guess who? Guess who? Us. Wonderful. Amen? Yeah, I'm so glad. Are you glad that God met with Saul on the road to Damascus? Are you glad that God interrupted his plans? Aren't you also glad that God chose someone who was a persecutor of the church? Look who he chose. Someone who said later he was the worst of all the apostles for what he had done. The Lord takes the worst and he says, you're the one that's going to go over there and, and, and teach the Gentiles about me. Love that. Philippians, look at this. <clears throat> Look what Paul says about himself. It's not boasting, by the way. It was truth and humility. I know some people say Paul boasted a lot. He didn't. He spoke the truth. He spoke the truth. But look at this. Circumcised, because he's talking about if anyone has a reason to boast, I have more of a reason to boast. And then he goes on to say, circumcised on the eighth day, the people of, his, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. And we're all like, ooh, Paul, you are amazing. (laughs) Right? I love it. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Paul knew something. Oh, I'm not there yet. Oh, and here. Indeed, I counted everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ 
He didn't just give up good things, guys. He, he suffered horribly as well. But he said it's all worth it. Remember last week we had that, that phrase? When we have first love, it doesn't make suffering easy, but it means it's worth it. It has purpose. Paul found that purpose. That's what he's saying. It was worth it for the sake of knowing Christ. This shouldn't surprise you either, by the way. And I should have had... That's not... I, I, I am so missing a, a slide, but that's okay. This shouldn't surprise us either. God has always led his people. Um, his standard is to call us to be like him. He says, resist temptation. What did he do? Resist temptation. He says, pick up your cross and follow me. What did he do? Picked up his cross for you. Right? He says, love your neighbor as yourself. What did he do? He didn't even love his life to hold on to life. He, he, he sacrificed himself. He died for us. He didn't even hold on to equality with God as a thing to be clinged to. That's what it says in Scripture. But he gave up the divine privilege of taking on the form of a slave. He was willing to get low. And then he says, now you get low. Right? He says, I didn't come to, to, right? He said, I came to serve. The Son of Man didn't come to be served. He came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And now he says, you're not here to, to be served and set up your kingdom here on earth. You're here to serve and give your life as a ransom for many. That's who he is. But there's another one who's had a great encounter with God. I skipped forward a little bit. And no, I'm not putting myself on par with the Bible characters. I'm just trying to demonstrate this is not a new thing, an isolated thing. This is how it's always worked. I've had four key encounters that led to me getting to a place where I, would do any, where I wanted to do anything for Jesus. Four key encounters, right? Uh, in... in uh, there would be 1988, 1990, one in Tobermory where God met me in the Word in 1 John and assured me that I was his son. I knew it. I knew it. It was burning inside and no one could take it from me anymore. Right? The next one in 1990, Isaiah 6. God called me in Isaiah 6. I, I, I responded to him, send me. I had no idea what it meant. Then you go forward, 2003, January 28th, the birth of my son, God speaks to me. Before I've ever learned how to, to hear him in my thoughts, he spoke to me and I knew it was him. I rejected him still. August 27, 2004, he meets me in my car and says, I know who you are, I know what you've done, and I love you anyways. Come just the way you are. And I said, oh, if you will take me like I am, I will follow you anywhere. And I continue to recommit myself to that cause. And when the fire dwindles in my heart, and it does sometimes, I talked about that last week, it does, then I get back on my knees and I get back to the pit and I start feeding it again. It's too precious to me to let it go out. Said recently, and I am working on my schedule because I know we have to work things out. I was on a busy stretch. And I complained to my wife. I'm like, I'm, you know what the common thing is that I'm, I'm saying? I don't have time. I don't have time. I don't have time. And I feel like I'm saying that to everyone and it's bothering me. And then I stopped. There's only one person that I always have time for and that's Jesus. And by the way, you should also have time for your spouse. And you shouldn't always say that and for your kids. Like, you should have time for lots of people. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying that. But I was feeling the crunch. We're the seasons, right? I won't give up that one. So, that's me. What about you? Let's take a moment. You have your journal here? You have your phone? If you don't, think about it in your heart. Close your eyes and meditate. What about you? 
What encounter do you have with the glory of God, with the person of Jesus Christ? Why did you decide, if you decided at one point in your life that you wanted to follow him, that you, which was essentially to lay down your life, to pick up your cross and to follow him as Savior and Lord, why did you do it? I want you to think about that time. Sometimes the fire, the embers are so, you almost can't even see it. Sometimes the fire pit looks like it's burnt out, but it's not. There's something burning beneath the surface. Lord, would you draw upon those parts of us where you have met us? Would you stir in us where you met us, that place where we met you and and chose to follow you as Lord and Savior? Would you rekindle that flame? Just write it down. time accessing highlight real moments just write down why are you a follower of Jesus what is it about him that makes him worth following because whatever you write down was revealed to you not by flesh and blood only the Holy Spirit draws men into himself and women on once we experience Jesus so we've had these moments and this is often the problem often the problem isn't having an encounter with Jesus because in most cases people have a story to tell and if you didn't maybe it was very young then you actually do have a story to tell you just have to spend a little bit more time in writing it down sometimes we look at there was a landmark moment you had a burning bush moment other times you were just kind of raised that way and it felt right all along but in either case It's the glory of God revealed to us internally that reveals Christ Jesus to us, that draws us to himself. So if you were drawn to him by any any means, it was by the Holy Spirit. So you have encountered God's glory. It's just about writing it down. Sometimes it's better the way you're wired to write down, why am I a follower of Jesus? Why are you? What is he to you? Who is he to you? And if you've never ever thought about these things before and don't have answers... What a good pursuit to actually have. 
to actually put it down to count that cost. What does he mean to you? It'll motivate you to keep going. Trust me on that. But once we experience him, we respond to Jesus. This response is necessary. And it's not just assume. Sometimes we assume if you, if you have a burning bush moment, then you're going to choose to follow him and be like a Moses, right? If God says to you in your car like he did me, I know who you are, I love you anyways, then you're going to follow him just like I'm doing. That's not the case. That's not the case. We all get a choice. He pursues all of us, and not everyone actually responds to him, responds to him. And yeah, an unknown quote, I wish I could actually give you the name, because I like actually giving you names of people I'm quoting, but I can't remember, it was on a podcast, and he said something that just, it struck me because it actually used the language that God used to call me in, but he said, many people are open to the come just as you are love of Jesus, but remain closed to the demands of Jesus. What was he getting at? Jesus as only Savior and functional Lord. And he was saying the church, in this podcast, he was talking about how the church is called to reflect the come just as you are love. And he said, you know, it doesn't mean that everyone's going to get saved, no. But they'll have a far better chance of receiving and, and following the demands of Jesus if they first encounter the come just as you are love of Jesus. And that's really what we're talking about, this experience of God's glory. Consider Mount Sinai, for instance. Remember we talked about Mount Sinai? God revealed to them so that they would not sin. But you know what they did? You know how they responded? Moses goes up, and he's meeting with God on the mountain. He's writing the Ten Commandments. God's writing it into stone. And the people grew impatient. They just experienced the glory of God falling. Remember, we read, we read that together. We closed our eyes. We tried to imagine a trembling mountain, lightning and thunder, fire and smoke, a trumpet sound. Like, what are they experiencing? But they couldn't wait on the Lord. They had no patience, no endurance, no perseverance. They couldn't wait for Moses to come back down. And they built an alt. They built a calf. They built an idol. They had experienced the glory of God, a measure of the glory of God, and their response was to build their own small g God in the likeness that they chose. And we look at that and say, how could they do that? After the glory of God, after they experienced the glory of God, how could they ever give that up for something so trivial? Like, how could they turn to idolatry? My question is, do we ever do that? Having access to the fullness of God revealed in his son, Jesus Christ, through the power of his Holy Spirit dwelling in us. Do we trade that glory for lesser glories that entertain? Second Corinthians, look at this. If the ministry of death came from such glory that the Israelites couldn't gaze at Moses' face because of its glory. That is what he's talking about. That, that glory there, which, <laughs> that's why I was talking about baby glory. Baby glory made Moses' face shine so bright they couldn't even stare at it, stare at him. And by the way, there's lots of verses that talk about those who look to him are radiant and their faces will never be ashamed. This idea of the glory of God radiating on our faces is not just for Moses. For people that spend time in the, in the presence of God. Anyways, maybe it's not exactly the same, but here we go. Will not the ministry of the Spirit 
have even more glory, and we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. (laughs) We have the Holy Spirit, the seal of redemption. Look at this. That according, this is Paul praying, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, right? Uh, uh, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. See, Paul, is, I, I'm, I should just read this. That's my notes. Paul's getting it. He's like, oh, that you would just know it, that you'd be filled with the fullness of God. His Holy Spirit, the fullness of God. Sam Whitfield writes this. Can you imagine being at Mount Sinai and refusing to gaze at the mountain and listen to the Lord's audible voice? Can you imagine something that spectacular and then saying, eh, putting your head down? He goes on to say, can you imagine putting on headphones and enjoying entertainment instead of gazing at the living God in fire on a mountain listening to his thunderous voice? But is this not what we do when we prioritize media and diversions over seeking communion with the Spirit and asking him to reveal God to us? <laughs> that one hit me like a brick this, earlier this week. I like, he has another quote that I'll give. Because it's him saying it, not me. And I, I don't like... Legalism, because it's not bad, but that's bad. But what he's saying here is, it's just a question. If we have been given access by the Spirit to behold the glory of God in a measure beyond what Israel experienced at Sinai, how is it that we find Netflix more attractive? And I'm not saying that's true for everyone. Fill in the blank on what is more attractive. Why is it not the thing that we long for above all else? Why do lesser loves drive us if we have access to this fullness? God has promised to reveal himself. He promised. And he does. But we have to respond to glory. He gives us an invitation to come to the table. And remember out of Isaiah 55? I don't know. Maybe you don't remember. But a couple months ago we preached on that. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to, right? Come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your labor for that which is not bread and your money for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and come here that your soul may live. He says, come to the table. Matthew talks about the banquet table, right? Go and find. Oh, the ones, the ones invited didn't come. Go find everyone. Invite them to the banquet. The banquet table is set, right? Look at it. He pursues, loves, meets, created, died, gave, gives us his spirit. He's holy, uncreated, beginning, in the end, eternal one. He reigns sovereignly, and one day, every knee will bow. Every knee. And we get to see him. No more veil. Esau came in from the field and was exhausted. Esau says to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I'm exhausted. And Jacob says, sell me your birthright now. Look at Esau. Silly Esau. I'm, I'm about to die. Of what use is my birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. And so he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Can you imagine doing that? A birthright? He was the firstborn? Gives up his entire birthright and inheritance for a bowl of soup? Some of you are like, yeah, maybe for a big steak. (laughs) But soup? It's mostly liquid. It's filler. And there are some good soups. Unless you have a good Mennonite soup. Those things are not filler. They are stuffing. But anyways, even for a good, you know, bowl of borscht, you wouldn't give up your birthright for that. It's worth too much. 
Can you imagine? Like, think about what he got. Esau got, he gave up this much for this little. And you're like, you're holding your fingers totally together. I know that. For this much, he gave up this much. How could he do that? This is exactly what Israel did at Mount Sinai. They traded the glory of God for an idol. This is exactly what we do sometimes. We trade the opportunity of the glory of God promised to us for things that have this much value that won't matter at all in a year from now, even next week from now. We've been given this precious time and precious resources and we have God's heart and he's sharing it with us and he says, go into all the earth. I love my people. So much I was committed to die for them. And I left because it was supposed to be better that I would send my spirit and have a global body called the church that would be my hands and feet that would love me with their whole lives. And they would wait with longing and a yearning in their heart for the day as a bride waits for the groom. They would wait for that bridegroom. And then we find ourselves, you know, you look on... You ever check those, they now have on these phones. By the way, I have a phone. I'm not against phone or Netflix. We watch, we, we watch shows on Netflix. And I have a phone. They have these cool things, though, now. It tracks how much time you spend on your phone. I'd encourage you to try and just go and look at that this week. And then compare that with how much time you spend with your king. And I'm not trying to shame anybody here. It's not about that. This is just too important for us to get it wrong. You don't get a second chance, a second life to figure it out. You get one chance, one life. What are you going to do with it? I think our biggest problem in the West, you know, sometimes we talk about right beliefs. I've talked lots about it, and it's a very big. We have to believe right. You think about progressive Christianity dismantling this book. It's not even assume. You can't even just assume that a believer believes everything in here anymore. So it is critical that we get our beliefs right. But at the heart of it, I don't think it's right beliefs of this that's causing our hearts to grow cold in the West. I think it's a lack of knowing God. We need both. And you could say, well, wrong beliefs about God could lead to it. Yeah, totally. But I'd say our biggest deficiency in the West, the reason why our love is so cold, it's not because we don't believe in Jesus. It's because we don't really love Jesus. We're too busy. We're too distracted. And maybe you're sitting here saying, I do love Jesus. Yes! So do I. Maybe you're sitting here saying, I want to be there. I don't know how to get there. I'm stuck. I get that too. Because I'm still stuck. I haven't arrived anywhere. I'm still stuck. I was pleading with him this morning. I'm like, Lord, I just, I write these notes and I'm just, knowing me, I'm just going to get it wrong. Unless you do it in me, I can't, I'm going to get it wrong. I'm going to take something that's this big and I'm going to present it like this. So 
So if you want to go online, you can have a, there's an online heart check. <laughs> it's a fun challenge, a fun challenge. <laughs> You're going to learn very quickly what is fun to me. I like fun things that cause pain. <laughs> it is true. That's why I like exercise. It's fun. <laughs> she had seen me with my dog collar the other day. We had a training collar. I probably shouldn't tell you this. My family and a bunch of others got sent this video. If you really want to see it, I'll show it to you. Not on the screen. Anyhow, I had a little mini lesson with our kids. Jesus doesn't call us to do things that he doesn't first go through himself. So we shouldn't use this zappy collar on our dog until someone zaps himself. So first thing, you grab it. Oh, goes around the neck. Next thing is, we're going to try it at 10% and 15%. All of a sudden, it's at 100%. And I'm trying to hold it. I'm like, Anyways, so if you like fun like me, go, on, go online onto the message notes and you're going to see there's a challenge. And I'm just, it's, it's not trying to get to legalism or a bunch of do's and don'ts. You have enough of that in your life. I'm trying to get to your heart. So sometimes we have to ask tough questions to try to get to the heart. And it doesn't, you know, this doesn't always equal this. But I want you to look at this. Is, is the condition of my heart and the way that I spend my money and time, are they in direct correlation to each other? Like, what am I investing my life in, right? Money and time, I use those two specifically because those are like the biggest commodities that we're given, right? So the way we use that, is there a correlation between that and the condition of my heart currently? Because I would suspect you're going to find, or many in here are going to find a correlation. Church, there's too much, there's too much at stake. So we're going to we're going to close. We're actually going to do um, the last song because I want to do the last song. We've got to get in there. So I'm just going to skip my notes and I'm going to jump right to... That's not what I'm jumping to. I had... C is gone. Okay, I'll just tell you. As the worship begins, there's three things I want you to do. That. You guys are amazing. Sometimes I rush my PowerPoints and I screw it up a little bit and then they fix it. So... Thank you. Lord bless you and keep you. All right, this is what you're doing. Commit. I want each of us to do a commitment. As we're going to sing this last song, I want you to commit. If there's something you got, if you've put anything before him, confess it as sin to the Lord. Just do it. Why hold on to it? What do you have in life that's so special? Pentecost is next week. You know that? What a day that's going to be to celebrate. We will celebrate it next week. So maybe you want to go on to version, do one of those five-day Pentecost reading plans. And at the same time, commit to, what if you did this? Commit to every day this week, spending time in prayer and worship along with that reading plan. We could do it together. I'd do it. I will do it. But right here, that last one, commit. As we sing, commit. I want you to write it down. Commit. Lord, I am committing. I am telling you that I will follow you with my whole life because nothing else will do.